Last week, we came to the end of Romans chapter 14, and next week, God willing, Pastor Gary will pick up in Romans 15, 1. And this week, we're going to sort of do a slightly topical message, bouncing off of the last two verses of Romans 14, on an issue that uh, I think many of you will be blessed by, I hope. It's the issue of decision-making and the will of God. And honestly, in, in pastoral ministry, this is one of the questions that most comes up. Godly people wrestling with, sometimes agonizing over, trying to determine what God's will for their life is. How do you know God's will? How shouldn't you try to find God's will? How can you be certain you have God's will? And, and these are for little decisions or the big ones. Um, and many people agonizing over, is this the person God wants me to marry? Is this the school God wants me to go to? Is this the vocation God wants me to enter into? Or it could be something smaller. You know, is this the car God wants me to buy? Is this the type of gospel ministry God wants me to get involved into? And there's as many answers as there are books out there, apparently. I've heard all sorts of variety of answers, and yet I'm here to tell you this morning that the biblical answer is, is clear, and it's unmistakable, I believe. I think there can be a danger of, of Christians sort of feeling like God's best will for you, or it's kind of like he hid a bunch of Easter eggs out there, and you've got to find them. And he's up in heaven going warmer, warmer, oh, cooler, cooler. And there's this magic, perfect life out there that if you could just figure it out, if you could just read the signs, if you could just connect the dots, you'd be on to, and maybe even a fear of missing it. Getting to the end of your life and realizing you didn't live God's plan for your life, but only had a mediocre life. And we'll address all that this morning. If you look at the outline, there's five points. The first two deal largely with um, foundational issues, and the last three really model what I think is biblical decision-making. In addition, we've got ten copies of John MacArthur's Found, God's Will, available in the foyer um, after the service. It's a great little read, and a lot of the material that I'll be presenting comes from that and from some other resources I was using. And let's just start by looking at the top of the notes by recognizing that the issue of wanting to know God's will is, is a good and biblical thing. Scripture would call us to do that. You can see in Ephesians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So there's an apostolic command that I am not to be foolish, but to understand what the will of the Lord is. And then just a month or so ago in Romans, starting out this section of orthopraxy, the imperatives, the commands. What does Paul say in Romans 12 too? But be not transformed, but be, but be transformed, sorry, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So again, Paul expects us to be able to determine the will of God. So we're going to look at it in, in five points. The first, insufficient methods for decision-making. Insufficient methods for decision-making. And the reason why I want to start here is this. Um, there are so many popular things that people will use that we need to address some of them and say, some of these are okay as far as they go, and some of them are downright wrong or foolish. We'll take a look at some of these. And... If these are some of the practices you use, don't be discouraged. I think by the end of this message, you'll be very encouraged. 
And not everything on this list is bad, but none of them are what the scripture says, this is where you go. This is how you know. Some of these can work by ways of confirmation or encouragement, but, but none of the things listed here, I believe, um, are what the scripture says, this is how you know God's will. So let's take a look at the first, peace and leadings. And this would sort of be the category of the experiential, inner testimony, the still small voice. Um, God's leading me to go here, God's leading me to go there. And if you ever notice in conversation, whenever someone says that, God's leading me, we feel God's leading us here, it's sort of unassailable. It ends all discussion at that point because, I mean, after all, if God is leading you, well, who am I to say anything? And yet, we don't see that type of language crop up in the Bible. We don't see that you'll just sort of know. And the temptation, if this is where you want to go, is you don't really need a Bible if the Holy Spirit's just going to tell you what to do. Do you? I have no doubt that the Spirit of God leads people, puts impressions on people's hearts, but nowhere in the Bible that I read are I told, that's how I know. I think that can be confirmation, but I think we also all know people who've done things that are downright unbiblical, claiming the Lord leading them. I've heard people claim the Lord's leading them to, to get a divorce, the Lord's leading them to stop going to church, and all sorts of other things. The bottom line being, we can misunderstand God's leading. We can mistake what I want the impression that I have, or maybe something even I ate for dinner for God's leading. It lacks the authority of what we're going to see in Scripture. Another point with peace that's often used is that peace, again, is, is not authoritative. You could have peace because the perfect peace of Christ could be reigning in your hearts, or you could have peace because your conscience is deadened and quiet or uninformed. It's important to remember that both Jesus and Jonah had peace at sea. You ever think about that? Jesus, asleep in the boat in the middle of the storm, perfectly at peace in God's will. Jonah, rebellious prophet, perfectly at peace, asleep in a boat in a storm. Just because you have peace doesn't mean you're experiencing the peace of God. It could just be the peace that Jonah had. Peace is a good thing. I would encourage you not to do something you're not at peace with, but just because you have peace is not a guarantee that it's the peace of God, the peace of Christ. Jonah, after all, had peace. The second category, signs and fleeces. And these would be sort of those moments of serendipity, those, those strange coincidences, those things that experience in our life. Um, probably the most common version of this is the sort of randomly open your Bible, put your finger on a verse, and that's God's... Has anyone ever... I, I've done that before. Um, not lately, but you sort of open your Bible and... Um, <laughs> Um, and you sort of open your Bible and just sort of, that's my verse for the day or, or whatever. And, and the blank here is the Bible is not a magic eight ball. You've seen those little children's toy, the magic eight ball, you shake it up and you ask it a question and, you know, will today be a good day? And it says, I don't think so. You know, and, and, or, you know, hard to tell or, you know, whatever. The Bible is not a magic eight ball. This is not a magic book. It's a powerful book, it's a living book, but it's not a magic book. And, and the Holy Spirit is not going to take the Word of God and apply it to you in a way that is alien from its context. In other words, God meant something when he said what he said in this Bible. And the Holy Spirit is not going to take what God meant and make it mean something different for you. 
Well, the best example I could think of in this is sort of comical. I was watching a video series on how to study the Bible, and they were warning against this method, and they showed a guy who got up, and um, he, he found his magic verse for the day, and it was, it was um, Hosea, go marry a wife of harlotry, to which he said, what? Debbie in accounting? <laughs> um, and, that, and that may seem strange, but I actually have met somebody who was, I believe, a godly woman in many respects, but she was sharing with us how she became convinced that God had called her and her husband to missions, and they were agonizing over whether or not he was supposed to go to or not, and, and so she said they were getting ready to go somewhere, and she hears her husband cry from the bedroom, and she goes in, and her husband is reading Philippians 2 that says, it's God who works within you both, and that was it. I'm not making this up. That was it. That was God's confirmation to him that he was supposed to go with his wife. The point is, the verse says it's God who works within you both to will and to do according to his will. The verse has nothing to do with whether or not one person should go or two people should go. And yet this otherwise godly couple, missionaries, were confused on this point of trying to find God's will. Thirdly, circumstances and open doors and this is getting at least a little bit more biblical. Um, the, the phrase open door is one that Paul uses. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he says, For a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And that phrase crops up a couple times. God has opened a door for Paul here. God has opened a door for Paul there. But all that means is opportunity. God created an opportunity for Paul. There's, there's no guarantee that Paul should take the opportunity. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul speaks about an open door he didn't go through. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13, Paul writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. An open door is an opportunity. It's a factor when God gives you opportunities, especially unexpected ones, it, sh it should be a factor in your decision-making. But sometimes open doors simply lead to elevator shafts. And, and, and the point is they need to be interpreted. I mean, imagine you're applying to be a missionary in India, and you send off your visa, and you get a response saying that India is no longer receiving missionaries. Well, what do you make of that? Perhaps you conclude God wants me to be a missionary somewhere else. Or maybe you conclude, God wants me to wait until they allow me. Or perhaps you conclude, God doesn't want me to be a missionary at all. Or maybe you think, God, I know what God's doing. He's testing my faith. I'll, I'll get to India if I have to swim. Which one of those is the right interpretation? An open door is simply an opportunity. It doesn't interpret itself. It needs to be interpreted. It needs to be understood. And there's many ways to interpret events. In fact... If you turn to Philemon, chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verse 15, Paul gives us some caution in his example of how he interprets God's open doors, God's possibilities, what God is doing. Philemon 1.15. Paul, speaking about the, the state of affairs where this runaway slave ran into Paul, and Paul is now sending him back to Philemon, but encouraging Philemon to let him go writes this, for perhaps this is why he parted from you for a while 
that you might have him back forever. And notice, Paul does not claim to be able to interpret authoritatively what God is up to in providence. He says, perhaps. Here's the circumstances. Here's the opportunity. Here's the open door. Perhaps this is what God is up to. And yet we can be tempted to go beyond that and say, I know what God's up to. I'm certain of it. Well, you're more confident in your ability to discern God's will than the Apostle Paul. I think Paul gives us a good model. I think it's helpful to look at circumstance. It's helpful to look at opportunities. Maybe God's up to something here. Let's test that. Let's see. But I'd, I'd encourage all of us not to be bolder than Paul in this matter. So then what are we to do? If that's, if that's not decisive ways, if these are not the final means of knowing God's will, what are we to do? We'll turn to Deuteronomy 29, 29 for another sort of foundational principle. This is probably a familiar passage to most of you. Moses is wrapping up the Pentateuch. He's closing out his final sermon series, if you will, to the people of Israel encamped outside of the land of Cana, getting ready to take possession. He's just bringing the Pentateuch to a close. And at the end of chapter 29, he writes this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us to our children forever, that we may do all of the words of this law. What Moses is saying is this. He's just finished the Pentateuch, and guess what? The Pentateuch does not tell you everything about everything. There's still countless things that God could have said that he didn't. And Moses calls those the secret things. And they're distinct from the revealed things. So there's two categories. The secret things, the revealed things. And which one is the one that belongs to us. It's the revealed things. In fact, you could almost argue that to try to get at the secret things of God, in some sense, could be viewed as a form of theft. God says, they're mine. This is what you have. This is what you're responsible for. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so the point here is that I want to try to communicate is that nowhere in Scripture... Are we commanded or expected to know, figure out, or even speculate at the secret things not revealed to us in his word? Let me say that again. Nowhere in scripture are we commanded or expected to know, figure out, or even speculate at the secret things not revealed to us in his word. And my point is this. Not that we're not going to be able to get to, well, how do I figure out who to marry? How do I figure out what school to go to? But I want to ease your consciences I want to take a load off of you that God doesn't demand that you figure that out. You know, if you've got the notion that God's will are like those hidden Easter eggs, God says, those are my secret things. You need to worry about this. God is going to hold us accountable for what we do with this. He, nowhere are we told, but you better figure out the secret things that I haven't revealed. Scripture does not tell you directly you know, Greg Rolak, this is who you need to marry. Or Scripture does not tell you what college to go to directly by name. And so because of that, I want you to understand that this is not a burden. It's not like God's up there in heaven going, I, I really hope Greg figures it out. I really hope James figures this one out. Why can't James get it? If it's not part of the revealed things, God does not require or expect. He's not going to punish us for not figuring this out. We've got plenty worry about. We've got plenty to be responsible for. But the secret things are not one of them. 
Now, we want to know those things. We want to know who to marry. We want to know what job to get. We want to know what school to go to. But please don't feel that God is up in heaven angry or disappointed because you can't figure out where he hid the Easter eggs. To put it plainly, nowhere in the Bible and nowhere in experience have I ever seen people that want to honor God, people that want to please God, people that want to obey God but sadly cannot due to a miscommunication with God. Think about that. Can you think of one example in Scripture where a person truly wants to honor and serve the living God, truly wants to obey, truly wants to please Him, and the problem comes down to one of miscommunication? What I see in the Bible is God speaking and people not wanting to obey. If your desire is to obey God, if your desire is to submit your life to Him, if your desire is to please Him, we're going to see this isn't going to be a problem for you. But at the same time, we don't need to become Easter egg finders, searching around, looking around every corner for coincidence, serendipity, leadings, whatever. We are to buckle down and deal with the revealed things. Which brings us to the second point. First, if we're going to figure out God's will, especially that secret will, first, we need to know and obey God's revealed will. We need to know and obey God's revealed will. God has given us 66 books of revelation. This is the revealed things. And he tells us in Deuteronomy, these are the ones that we're responsible for. They belong to us and to our children to do them. And you can imagine the arrogance and presumption of saying, you know what, God, I'm not terribly interested in knowing or doing that. What I really want to know is what college should I go to? You can, you can imagine the presumption of that. If we're not aggressively trying to obey God's revealed will, then we have no business pursuing his secret will, do we? And yet, we want the cut around. The reason why leadings and, and all those other things are so appealing is because they can skip right around this. I mean, I don't need to open my Bible if the Holy Spirit's just going to tell me what to do today. I don't need to study the Word if I can just... There we go. And, and yet... God tells us that what we're responsible for is, is his word and for knowing and doing it. And, and so often it's tempting for us to sort of sideline that because we'd just like a fresh, direct word from God. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be easy? It'd be simple and straightforward. But that isn't the way God has chosen to reveal his will to us in most cases. God has sent dreams. God has sent angels. God has, and I'm sure he does at times, give clear, direct leadings Revelation, but that's not the norm, and that's not what we're told to expect. What we are told to do is to buckle down and focus on God's revealed will. Because if when you study the Bible, you'll find phrases like this in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is God's will for your life, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So I can tell you right now, God's will for your life is that you be pure and holy. I can tell you God's will for your life is that you be saved is good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires that all men to come to repentance. So let's look at what I mean by doing God's revealed world. First, keep a clean conscience. Keep a clean conscience. If there is sin in your life that you're not confessing of, that you're not repenting of, that you're not turning from, then what's going to happen is your conscience is going to get hardened and the voice is going to go quieter and quieter. And again, you may end up having a lot of peace simply because the volume on your conscience is on mute, not because the peace of Christ is reigning in your heart. 
If, if we want to know God's will, we've got to start by walking in the light. And First John tells us if we're confessing our sins, then we have fellowship with one another, and his blood cleanses us from all uncleanliness. So our fellowship with one another and our fellowship with God is contingent upon a regular habit of confession of sin and repentance. That's how we stay walking in the light. Or Jesus in John 14 talks about washing the disciples' feet, and Peter says, well, bathe me. And he says, you're already clean. I just need to wash your feet. If you're born again, if you're in Christ, you are forgiven. You are justified, but you still need that daily, maybe even hourly, foot cleaning where we come to our Father and say... Father, I've sinned. Please forgive me. Please restore my fellowship with you. I've walked away for a time, and now I'm back, and I'm sorry. I'm guilty, but Jesus. Secondly, we need to grow in the Word and in prayer. Grow in the Word and in prayer. So first, obeying God's will is keeping a clean conscience. Second, we need to grow in the Word and in prayer. That is God's will for your life. We saw that again in Deuteronomy 29, 29. That God is very much concerned that we focus on understanding and reading and living his revealed will in the word. And so, again, to try to skirt around that to get to God's secret will for your life is, is disobedience and presumption. And we need to be involved in prayer, fellowship with God. Thirdly, we need to love and serve Christ's body. And again, this is God's will for you. We did a whole series in the spring last year about why were you born again? You were born again into the body. Why were you given spiritual gifts? To build up the body. Why did Christ die? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ died for you inasmuch as you're part of his church. He came for his bride. Not just you and me individually. Yes, you and me individually, but not just you and me individually, but all of us as his bride and his body. That's God's will for your life. And if you're resisting those things, then you're, you're, you're resisting the revealed will. And, and you have no business moving on to the secret things. And the good news is if you are doing those things, if you are keeping a clean conscience, if you're in the word, if you're in prayer, if you're loving and serving the body, guess what? You're going to be walking in the spirit. Your life is going to be a spirit-filled life you're going to be walking in light, having fellowship with God and one another, and that becomes a key starting point. We've got to be walking in the light. We've got to be filled with the Spirit. We've got to be walking in the Spirit. Um, it's interesting, this passage about being filled in the Spirit in, in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, if that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And then he describes what a life filled with the Spirit looks like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always in everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in reverence to Christ. So a life that is filled with the Spirit is to be a life that has us addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in our heart, and giving thanks always in everything to God the Father. Now listen to a very similar passage in Colossians with one crucial change. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Here it's, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's a near identical list. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be 
speaking and singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, making melody in your hearts and thankfulness to God. And if the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, the same thing's going to happen. And the conclusion then is that how do you get filled with the Spirit? You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What is the Holy Spirit's weapon of choice, if you will, his tool of choice? It's the word of God. Jesus says as much when he says that the Spirit will not speak anything on his own, but only what he hears me say. The Spirit's primary ministry in our life is to convict and apply and implant God's word in our life. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, you need to be filled with the word. Which brings us on then to point three. And this is the starting point for wisdom. Let's assume then that you're walking in the light. You've got a clean conscience. You're in the word. You're in prayer. You're in fellowship. And you still, like many people, rightly so, want to know, but, but who am I supposed to marry? What school am I supposed to go to? What job am I supposed to take? What career path am I supposed to choose? Or smaller issues. Should we buy this house in Norwalk or one in Indianola? Well, you're at a good starting point because you're walking in the light, you're being filled with the Spirit, you're being filled with the Word. Next point is James chapter 1. If you turn to James 1, there's a wonderful promise in James 1. James 1, verses 5 to 8, he writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And here's this wonderful promise. If anyone here lacks wisdom, all you have to do is ask. You don't have to Share your faith five times first. You don't have to read four chapters of the Bible first. You just have to ask. If you lack wisdom, you're not sure what to do to please God, ask. And God gives generously, literally liberally, abundantly to all. The only condition put on this, there's only one, is asking in faith. And that, of course, then begs the question, well, what does that mean? We've got to ask in faith. Well, I think the flip side he gives in the, in the last two verses helps understand what that means. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And that gets at the heart of it. There's this double-mindedness, literally split-souled. And the concept is this. What James means by asking in faith is asking holy, not coming to God divided with, well, let's see what God has to say. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do something else. Part of me wants to obey God, but part of me is still considering doing it a different way. And you come to God and you ask for wisdom like that. James says, with a split division inside of you, not coming as a slave of Christ, not coming saying, Lord, what is your will that I may do it, but rather coming and saying, Lord, what is your do will? I'll consider it. Well, James says, if you come that way, you ought not to expect to receive anything. If you come later on in chapter 4, he'll use that same term, double-minded, and ask, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly. Spend it on your pleasures. Open your Bibles to Ezekiel 14 for a vivid picture of what it means to come being double-minded, what we're warned against. Because this is a great promise in James 1. God promises wisdom. 
without condition, apart from faith. And in Ezekiel, the situation is that Israel has been taken captive into Babylon. And Ezekiel is God's prophet to the people just in the commons. Daniel is God's prophet in the royal city, in, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah is God's prophet back with the remnant in the land. But Ezekiel is God's prophet to the people of Israel in Babylon. And so if you want a word from God, if you want to inquire of the Lord, you've got to go to God's prophet. And in Ezekiel 14, a bunch of elders from Israel do exactly that. Then certain elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. So what's going on, again, is, is Ezekiel sitting there and a bunch of elders come and they sit before him, which is a sign of respect. It looks good. God's people have come to God's prophet for a word from God. And yet God tells Ezekiel, don't be fooled. They may outwardly look like they want to please me. They may outwardly look like they're honoring me. But inwardly, they've got idols. Inwardly, they're not worshipers of the living God. They're worshipers of other things. It's that same picture of being divided inwardly. James says, don't come to God asking for wisdom like that. You're not going to get anything. You've got to come wholly devoted to the Lord. You've got to come saying, Lord, tell me what to do and I'll do it. All I want to do is what pleases you, Lord. So just please show me what that is. Help me understand what your will for me is, and I will do it. We don't come to God saying, well, let's see what the Lord has to say. I'm going to ask Bob later, too. And then, you know, no, it's, it, you don't come to sort of, well, I'll consider it. You come as a servant of Christ. James promises us that God will give us the wisdom we need. I mean, isn't that a wonderful promise? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all. But you must ask in faith. Notice that James doesn't tell us how it is we're to get this wisdom. He leaves that open-ended. He just promises that we will. Which means that when we ask God for wisdom and when we turn to him in prayer, we need to trust and expect and believe that he's going to give us that wisdom. It may be through the wise counsel of godly men. I'd encourage you to involve others, especially your spiritual leaders and parents. It may be through his word. I mean, it may please the Lord to send you an angel. I, I, I doubt it, but he's done it before. The promise is simply that he will give you the wisdom. James doesn't concretely spell out how. But that promise is there. You, God will give you the wisdom you need to know to please and honor him. And you can take comfort in that. Which brings us into Romans 14 and our text from last week. Open your Bibles to Romans 14. And here we get down, I think, to the, the real practical nitty-gritty of decision-making. In Romans 14, verse 22 to 23, we read, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. 
But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the real thing we've got to figure out in decisions is more, what can I do in faith? That's the thing we need to figure out. What can I do in faith? And in this context, we've seen in the last two weeks that what Paul means in faith, by doing something in faith, is having an informed conscience fully convinced in your own mind. It, it means you've searched the scripture and you're convinced that what you're about to do is pleasing to God. That's what it means to do things in faith. And so you find out what can be done in faith by looking at the Bible. And I want to suggest you a, a threefold grid. Let's imagine it's the classic dilemma that you're struggling with of which person to marry. God's brought someone into your life and you're just not sure, is this the person God has for me? And you're, and you're wrestling through that. I, I wrestled through that. Other, no, others have wrestled through that. And sort of apply this threefold grid. The first step is what biblical commands are there that relate to my decision? What biblical commands are there? Because these are going to rule off things. Like when you look at marriage, there's actually surprisingly only a few. Don't marry someone of the same gender. Don't marry somebody who doesn't love Jesus, who's an unbeliever. Don't marry a very close relative. And don't marry someone else's spouse. That really is about it for law, for commands. So right off the bat, you know that if you're considering marrying an unbeliever, if you're considering marrying um, someone else's spouse, that is not God's will for your life. You cannot do that in faith. No matter how many leadings you have, you can't do it in faith. The second category, then, is biblical precepts and principles. And what, and what I mean by this is there are some things that God just names, don't do that, or do do that. And there are other things that are an extension by principle. I was talking to a friend of mine last night about, he's going to a church meeting. And they're considering building a wheelchair ramp for some elderly people in their congregation. And he asked me what the Bible said about it. And I said, this is perfect. This is one of those principle issues. There's no verse that says, build a wheelchair ramp. But James tells us the true and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You don't have to read very long in the Bible to see God's heart for the weak, the elderly, the powerless, the infirm, and the priority he places on that. So I think by an extension of biblical principles and precepts, yes, you should do something to care for these people who are struggling in your church. If they're being excluded from fellowship because of infirmity, Love would demand that we do something about it. That, that's an application of a principle. So you've got the first circle, flat-out commands, that God says yes, no. Other things, principles. Some other principles would include 1 Corinthians six twelve. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And that's the principle of, of does it do anything good? If you're making a decision... And one option is going to provide growth and encouragement. The other's not. By extension, Paul says, look, you should be choosing the things that build up, the things that edify. Or another principle, Philippians 2, 3 to 4, do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility of mind, considers others more important than yourselves. Look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so here's a principle of, is this just going to help and serve me? What about other people? That would be another biblical precept and principle. Then you move down to the third category, biblical wisdom. So, so if you get back to our example of, of marriage, you, you eliminate 
all the people of the same gender. You eliminate the unbeliever. You eliminate um, the close relatives, the people who are already married, and you're left with a grid. Now, you sort of apply principles and precepts, and I'd say some basic principles and precepts would be things like these. If you have no ability to lead or shepherd or be the spiritual leader in your home, like let's just say you're a man, you got saved yesterday, and the woman you're considering has been to seminary, has been a Christian for 34 years, I, I think you're going to have a really hard time being a spiritual leader in the home. Uh, it's not forbidden, but I think biblical principles would advise against it. If you've got two people that have wildly divergent theology, I mean, you know, she's speaking in tongues and he thinks that's from the devil, it's going to make for a really interesting Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> it, it's, it's not forbidden... Right? It's not law, but it certainly is at the principle factor, right? Where this, this is a pretty good principle of being unequally yoked. And if you're not on the same page biblically, it's going to be difficult. Well, then you can move to wisdom. And, and Proverbs talks about here's what a godly woman looks like. This is the type of man, a type of woman, I'm sorry, that young men should seek in Proverbs 31. And, and for women, you can go to the qualifications of elders in and, and 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And, and this is wisdom. This is the type of person that's going to bless you as a husband or as a spouse. And so you've got your grid. You, you rule out those that are forbidden. You strongly consider against the, the ones that biblical principles go against. Now you're factoring in wisdom. And you, and you still may be left with a couple choices. You factored that through. I think it's rare where you've got three or four you know, um, men you're considering or women you're considering marrying. But let's just imagine you've got such a scenario. Well, now what do you do, Right? Well, get ready for point number five, and this is, this is the exciting one, okay? If you've done that, if you are walking in the Spirit, if you are dealing with sin in your life, if you are in the Word and in prayer, if you're serving the body, and then if you've held up this decision to Scripture and you've found out, and you've maybe got help to find out, what, what are the biblical laws regarding this choice? What are off-limits? And, and what biblical principles factor in? And finally, what wisdom is there? If, if you've done that, then the surprising and I think exciting fifth point is do what you want. I'll say that again. Do what you want. Listen to John MacArthur defend and explain this statement in his little book, Found God's Will. Okay, he writes, let me give you the final principle, but hold on to your seat. You may want to jump up and shout. If you're doing all the basic things, you do what the next principle, then you want to know what the next principle of God's will is. Here it is. Do whatever you want. If those elements of God's will are operating in your life, who is running your wants? God is. The psalmist said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart Psalm 37 4 God does not say he will fulfill the desires there if you are living a godly life he will give you the right desires if you're walking in the spirit if you're submitting your life wholly to God if you are searching his word to see what it says about a decision and you've decided you know what I can do these three things in faith. Every single one of them is lawful. Every single one of them agrees with biblical principles. Every single one of them would be wise. And do what you want. Because you can do all three of those things in faith, and you should trust that in that state, God is directing the desires of your heart. God is sovereign. If that's not what he wants you to do, he'll shut it down. He'll stop it. 
You see, it's not that there's these magic Easter eggs out there we've got to find. Rather, as we focus on obeying God's revealed will, he is going to get our heart in line. You know, many men talk about being called to ministry, and I've been asked by people, do you feel called to ministry? I used to wrestle with that because I'd hear stories about people who just, one day it was like a lightning bolt hit them, and they knew at age 13 God had called them to preach or something. And I never had an experience like that. Rather, it was a slow, growing desire. And so when I graduated from college and the opportunity of going to seminary was put in front of me, I had to work through it because I didn't have a magic call. And as I worked through it and the finances were there to not go further in debt, I thought of Proverbs that says, you know, get wisdom if you can get it. It's to be more desired than fine gold. I thought about training and Paul's desire to train up young men. And I thought, you know what? I can go to seminary in faith because I know the Bible says to get wisdom at all costs if you can. And I know the Bible also talks about, you know, be wary of getting debt, but I can do this without incurring debt. So I can do this in faith. I can go to seminary believing it pleases God. And that was good enough for me. And I wanted to. So I have this desire, and the desire agrees with what God's word says is good. That must be God's will for my life. And I did it in faith. I did it in faith. And then when I was in seminary, a greater desire grew and grew to shepherd and to teach God's word. And I was having a Bible study, and other people were confirming that, saying, hey, we think you're gifted. And that was, that was how I got my call to ministry, was just a growing desire, stepping out in faith, holding up God's word to those types of decisions. And as God directs my heart and he directs my step, he's working out his will for my life. Because our God is sovereign, Our God is not up in heaven going, "Mm, why did Jeremy do that? I had such a good plan laid out and he just messed it up. No, God is sovereign. Proverbs says the the heart of the king is like streams of water in the Lord's hands. He directs them wherever he wills. If we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the very desires in our heart. And if you are focused and intent on obeying the revealed will of God, He's going to direct your steps in your heart. And if you've worked through the biblical parameters, what does the scripture command? What principles apply? What wisdom is there? And you've got through the other side of that. Out of those remaining choices, do what you want. And this is where, you know, leadings and impressions, and even if you want, the coincidence can, can come and factor in. That's fine, but they should never go around this. We need to do the work of holding up our decisions to Scripture, holding up these choices to what the Bible says. With the few remaining minutes we have, if you just turn over your uh, notes, I've tried to put this in a summary fashion to be helpful. Just look through this briefly. The summary on biblical decision-making. And I really hope this is practical, and I hope it's liberating. I hope it's liberating that you can trust that God's going to direct your steps. He's going to direct your heart if you will be wholly submitted to him. First, check your life. Be repenting and confessing of all known sin. Be in the word and in regular prayer. and Be serving and in regular fellowship with the local church. So make sure you're walking in the light. Make sure you're walking in the spirit. Make sure you're doing God's revealed will. Second, ask God for wisdom for this decision. Don't forget to ask God. It's so simple, yet so fundamental and profound. And we've got to do it believing that he will give us wisdom, and we've got to ask committed to follow it, whatever it is. You know, sometimes we don't ask God for wisdom because we're afraid of what the answer might be. 
Then we search the word to see what can be done in faith, and you can have others help you do this. You can, hey, what are some biblical principles about, you know, careers? What are some biblical decisions and, and principles that should factor into choosing a college? What has God commanded? What precepts and principles apply? And what wisdom does the scripture offer? And then fourth, choose what you want from the remaining options. Choose what you want from the remaining options. We've got to do it in faith. We've got to do it to the glory of God. And we've got to do it fully convinced in our own minds. And if you can do that, you will be in God's will. If you've thought through and you know with confidence because you've searched the Bible and you've prayed and asked for wisdom that what you're about to do can be done in faith, God requires nothing more of you. We saw that in Deuteronomy 29, 29. God requires nothing more of you than that you search his word, prayerfully ask for wisdom, and then act in faith. So those blanks in point five, we've got to do what we want in faith to the glory of God and fully convinced in our own mind. And if we can do that, we'll be living out God's perfect will. And how do I know that Serena was the right one for me to marry? Well, because I married her. <laughs> Prior to that, I've got to say what Paul said to Philemon. Perhaps this is what God would have for me. I mean, really, up until, you know, we said I do, God could intervene and stop it from happening. Sure looks, sure looks like that was the one for me. You know, we, we hope and trust that God has brought Greg and Allison together, but we'll know he has in, in, at the end of the month. Um, <laughs> right? But all God calls us to do is to act in faith. Can we do what we're doing in faith? Can we make this choice in faith? Can we do it fully convinced that we're pleasing God with a clean conscience to his glory? And if we can, then Act. And don't let fear of, of missing God's will for your life stop you from, from acting in faith and trusting that God is sovereign. God won't let you mess it up. If you want to please him, it won't get messed up. I promise you. God's word promises you. He will give you the wisdom if you ask. You just have to ask in faith, believing. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for giving us everything we need. We thank you for the provision you've made for us in your word, which equips us for every good deed. We thank you that, that you've given us your spirit. And we thank you that you have promised to guide our hearts, to even give us the very desires in our hearts, if we will just be devoted to you. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to trust you in this, give us a zeal for holiness and a zeal for studying your word and, and faith the trust that as we work through the decisions in our lives, that you will give us wisdom, that we will not falter to and fro, that you will establish our footsteps, that you will establish your will for our life, that we, by the transformation and the renewal of our mind, might approve your will and do it. In Jesus' name, amen.